We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 17, verse 20. Uh, John 17, verse 20, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, For context, if you are new or you haven't been around the last few weeks, uh, Jesus has just finished sharing his parting words with his disciples uh, hours before his arrest and execution. And as he finishes instructing them over the course of these hours and sharing his final thoughts, he transitions into prayer. And so last week and this week and next week, we're going to be, actually we'll spend four weeks unpacking uh, this prayer that Jesus prays at the end. And he uh, starts by praying over himself that he would be glorified and bring glory to the Father. Then he sort of moves outward and begins to pray a prayer of blessing over his disciples who are in the room. And then he moves out from there and prays a prayer of blessing over his future disciples, including you and I. Uh, And this is what he prays for us, picking up in verse 20. Uh, This is John 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying uh, in the presence of the Father, and he says, My prayer is not for them alone or just for the disciples in front of me. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Before we continue, I'll ask you to join me in prayer. Yeah, Father, uh, we turn our hearts, our minds, our eyes, so to speak, uh, toward you, and we pray that these things, that this reality that Jesus speaks of would come increasingly to bear on our hearts, that we would be able to say in all honesty, we are not perfect and will never be uh, this side of Uh, the fullness of your kingdom and the end of the age. And yet I pray that we would be able to say, no, this is true of us and is becoming increasingly true, that we are one with you and we are being brought into complete unity with one another in the midst of a deeply divided world. So would you come and begin to sort these things out among us? We don't think these are small issues, but large ones. Uh, You say that in light of this coming to bear on our hearts, that the world will know uh, that you sent us and that you reside in us, that what you've said is true because of the way we operate in this unity. So would you come as the shepherd and guide us uh, along a potentially difficult path uh, that we have to walk with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1970s, uh, a man named Leslie Newbegin was returning to the Western world after 40 years in India. And after stepping away from the Western world in the 1930s, if you can imagine that, uh, he's in an isolated place, and decades later, 40 years later, He gets to come back to the United Kingdom to uh, find a radically different world, a a post-Christian secular Western world that looks shockingly different in the 1970s compared to what he left in the 1930s. And from his outside perspective, he was able to speak with wonderful clarity about the change that had taken place. Uh, Those who had been there maybe didn't notice all of the slow incremental changes, but he could say, this is how it was, this is how it is, and not only that, but this is where I see things headed based on what I'm seeing. Um, And one of the many things that he predicted 
was that in the new secular Western world, people would turn to politics as a replacement for religion. What he said was that human beings will maintain that same need for meaning and purpose and identity. Uh, We will have the same desire to see the kingdom of God come, but in a secular world, he saw that people had been stripped of their identity in Christ, and they were now had lost their concept of the kingdom of God. Thus, he predicted that people would turn to politics for meaning, purpose, and identity, uh, for a, a story to live by and a kingdom to fight for. But in the process, he predicted that politics would become increasingly militant and toxic. Uh, He predicted that the secular West would turn to politics as an idol to fill the void, but in the process, politics would begin to eat us alive. And it has. Fast forward another 50 years, and his predictions came to pass. Americans often now approach politics with a sort of religious zeal as a source of identity and security and meaning and purpose. It has eaten us alive, uh, deeply dividing us in the process. Uh, The culture went from polite disagreement to entrenched disagreements to I can't be in the same room with someone from the opposite political party. Uh, We have uh, now rioting before and after our elections. Our presidential debates have devolved into petty insults. And uh, we're now at the point where we're so angry that we're ready to uh, storm the Capitol building and kill our political enemies if we have to, because we have this sense that everything is riding on this. It's part of my identity. I have to have things go this way. Our country is bitterly divided, and everybody knows it. Even our foreign enemies know how divided we are, and they delight in fanning the flames of that division. Our politics, as predicted, have turned uh, fanatical, militant, toxic, and as just one snapshot of how divided we are, uh, historically in America, sadly, large portions of the American population had an issue with interracial marriage. Uh, like the one that my wife and I entered into. The good news is that over the last hundred years, we've seen those numbers steadily decline into what is now a very small minority of people that have a problem with interracial marriage. But during that same time period, we've seen the steady increase in people who have a problem with interpolitical marriage. Isn't that interesting? In other words, I would say, oh yeah, I have no problem with my son or my daughter marrying someone from a different ethnicity so long as they're Republican (laughs) or a Democrat or you fill in the blank. We continue to be divided. Uh, Over the last few decades, uh, we have seen the deep division of our culture come to bear on the church as well. Uh, We are not immune to the toxicity or the divisiveness that we see out there. And as a result, we've seen uh, red churches and blue churches. Uh, We've seen church leaders publicly endorsing specific candidates and uh, telling people who to vote for. We've seen political prophecies uh, shared from church stages, many of which never came to pass. Over the last two elections, there were churches who came out and said, you cannot be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump, and here's why, and they would explain that. And you had other churches in the same breath who would come out saying, you cannot be a Christian and not vote for Donald Trump, and here's why. 
But with all of that division, there comes a cost. We've seen church bodies torn apart by the tension of political infighting. We've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of church leaders resign nationwide because they're so sick and tired of dealing with the political tension in their local church body. Uh, We've seen entire churches, once faithfully serving Jesus, uh, ripped to shreds by the beast of political fanaticism and left on the cutting room floor. There are church buildings sitting empty in our nation right now because they were torn apart, raised to the ground by raging politics. As we uh, step into this topic this morning, it can feel sometimes as if the uh, differences are irreconcilable. Uh, It can feel sometimes as if nothing can bridge that gap of a bitter division between left and right. And worst of all, in my opinion, the outside world looks on and sees churches divided yet again over another issue. And in the process, they are not drawn to him. But it's in that context that Jesus prays for us to be one in radical unity, just as He and the Father are one. And not only does that sound really difficult, but in the prayer that Jesus prays, uh, He says the stakes are actually really high. Like This isn't some peripheral issue that you can take on if you want to. He says the stakes are really high. It's actually a result of your radical unity that the world will know that Jesus is telling the truth. In other words, it doesn't matter how good we are at outreach or serving others or evangelism or whatever it is. Jesus says that's actually not the issue. The thing that's going to draw the outside world to me is the radical unity that they see in you that's only possible because of me. And before we write that off as impossible, we have to start by acknowledging that it's already happened with clarity in the early church. If you rewind back to the first century, you will find a world deeply divided between Jew and Gentile. And those categories are a little foreign to us, but they had different ethnic backgrounds, yes. But even more than that, they had different cultures, different worldviews, and polar opposite ideas about how the world ought to be run from a political standpoint. As a result, they hated each other. They wouldn't eat together, they wouldn't talk to each other, they wouldn't associate with one another, they would not intermarry. Sound familiar? But as the gospel rippled out across the Western world and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, Jew and Gentile for the first time stepped into loving relationship together in a way that was impossible outside of Jesus, in a way that was not happening in any other context anywhere in the ancient world. And as a result, the world noticed. People were curious. They looked in on the church and said, what is happening in this place that Jew and Gentile can now eat together? That Jew and Gentile can now worship together? That they serve the same God? That they love one another? That they want to be together? in the same place at the same time. And the world was drawn in. What business do zealots and tax collectors have worshiping the same God, walking hand in hand as friends? But that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. He said, I'm going to pray for a radical unity in you, and the world's going to see, and the world is going to be drawn in the world will know that I'm back from the dead, that I was telling the truth because of the radical unity they're going to see in you. 
So that leaves us with a massive looming question this morning. Um, Is that possible for us? Is what happened to Jew and Gentile in the first century attainable? Um, How do we practically navigate the toxic world of political disunity and come to a place of radical unity in the midst of our divided culture? That's the question we have to wrestle with. Assuming that we even want this, assuming that we hear that prayer Jesus is praying over us and we say, yeah, I think I, think I want to chase that down. Where do we even start? What do we do? How do we go about that? How do we begin to experience what Jew and Gentile experienced in the first century? A few thoughts, uh, if you're taking notes. Uh, The first is that you need to place your biblical identity over your political identity. Secular culture is fanatical about politics because it's lost Christ. But you haven't. You have an identity in Him that is deeper than anything else, that transcends any political party or preference. All of that other stuff is secondary, is tertiary, which is why the Scriptures say, hey, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. And what we have to grasp is that all of those things were crucial identity markers before Jesus came. That is who you are. Not so in Christ. After Jesus, on the other side of the cross and resurrection, uh, as you step into Christ, those things don't define you anymore. Notice that they're still true. I'm still a female, Gentile, whatever it is, but that's no longer my identity. That's what the Scripture is saying. So in the same way, we could say, hey, there's no longer Democrat or Republican, Green Party or Libertarian, or whatever else. Like, no, that's no longer your identity. You now belong to something that is transcendent. Scriptures say all are in Christ, and Christ is in all. And so that other stuff begins to fade and importance. Uh, You cannot afford to elevate your political identity over your identity in Christ. That's one form of what the Scriptures would call idolatry. If you ever get to the point where you say, I'm a Republican first, and then a follower of Jesus, or I'm a Democrat first, and then a follower of Jesus, you've stepped over that line. The scriptures will say, hey, you need to readjust. You need to repent. You need to come back and sort those things out. Uh, put the horse before the cart. I think Jesus would say, hey, anyone who's not willing to forsake their political identity and put that in the back seat for my sake is not worthy of me. So come and follow me in that order. Um, in the first century, we would say, hey, you are not a Jew who happens to be a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus who happens to be Jewish. Do you see the difference? Maybe. Number two, recognize that you have more in common than you have in contrast. If you are standing face to face with a genuine follower of Jesus, the Scriptures say you have one Father, one Spirit, one adoption into one family, one Savior, one baptism, one cross, one body, and one shared destiny. We could go on and on. There are a hundred crucial truths that you now share with anyone else on the planet. You've been cleansed by the same blood. You've been made a new creation by the same resurrection. You are brothers and sisters of of the same Father. And that has to matter more than your disagreement over whatever the fleeting, hot, political topic of the day happens to be. Because it'll pass and there'll be another one and then another one after that. You have more in common than you do in contrast. Number three, put others above yourselves. 
And I mean that inside the church and outside of the church. Um, I can genuinely say I care more about you guys who are sitting here this morning than I do about voting to begin with. Like this just matters more to me than any of that other stuff. And so, uh, and, and not only that, but I care deeply about the lost people all around us who, who need what Jesus is talking about, who need to see something transcendent, who need to see the Spirit manifest in His church. I, I cannot think of any place right now where right and left are genuinely coming together in brotherhood and sisterhood outside of the church. This is it. It's just like the first century. There is no other place that can unite those and show the world what is possible. Uh, and, and so I take the heart posture of, hey, I'm going to stand before God at the end of the age. Am I really willing to cause all of these other people to stumble over the disunity that I'm causing because I have to spit out my political opinions? I don't think so. I don't think that's the way I want to stand before the Father at the end of the age. So which is more important to us? Do I have to violently thrust my political opinions on others, or is my heart posture actually for those who don't know Jesus, who do not have hope in eternal life, but who could if the church becomes what the church is meant to be? Number four, if you vote, choose your candidate or party for biblical reasons, not cultural ones. Historically, throughout the ages, the church has cared for the poor and the orphan and the widow. Uh, they've cared for creation and the world that God has entrusted to us. Uh, they've cared for women and unborn children. They've cared for biblical marriage and sexual purity. Uh, they've worked toward a wise and just society. But the tragic thing uh, about politics is that our kingdom values have been split in half. And half have been adopted by the left, and half have been adopted by the right. Which is why you have churches who will say, hey, if you're a Christian, you have to vote this way. Or if you're a Christian, you have to vote that way. Because they're latching on to specific kingdom values that they see in one party or another. Uh, as a disciple, you should be able to recognize the ways in which our kingdom values have been compromised and split in half. Half have been claimed by the left, half have been claimed by the right. So um, if you vote for the left, it should be for biblical reasons. It should be because you care about social justice, or you care about the poor, or racial equality, or caring for creation, uh, or the, the foreigner uh, and the immigrant among you, whatever it is. If you're voting for the right, it should be for biblical reasons. Uh, it should be because you care about protecting unborn children or maintaining a biblical view of marriage and sex and gender. Or it's because you uh, desire this, this picture of strong families and strong local communities operating in the way that Scripture envisions. Or because you desire to have uh, to always have the freedom to be able to preach the gospel in public places and public context. But whatever you choose, choose it for biblical reasons. I'm sometimes shocked by followers of Jesus who not only are very excited to voice their political preference, but have made those preferences for unbiblical reasons. They've deeply entrenched themselves on one side or another, but it has nothing to do with Jesus or the inbreaking kingdom of God. If you want to vote, then vote. But make your choice through that lens. Through the lens of the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. Number five, 
have compassion and empathy for one another. For all the reasons I just listed. Uh, Listen to one another and seek to understand each other. Uh, The disciples would not have all voted the same way. And that's okay. That doesn't seem to bother Jesus. Zealots and tax collectors don't vote for the same person. We are probably not all going to vote for the same person. Get over it. Get to know each other and to love one another. Have empathy for people that don't see eye to eye with you. Maybe my thing is abortion. And I say, you know what? I'm going to vote right every single time for the rest of my life because this is my issue. And I'm convinced if I vote right long enough that eventually it will become illegal at the federal level. And that's my thing. But I also need to have empathy and understanding for the person who votes left because they really care about racial equality. And and then as we get to know each other, I realize, oh my gosh, we both care about unborn children. You're really passionate about that too. You're just not convinced that the next presidential election is going to change that. And so you're voting for somebody that you think will make changes and bring greater racial equality, and you've given up hope that the federal government's ever going to change their stance on abortion. And, and wow, you're actually serving single moms at this ministry that you go to, and you care, you, we care about the same things. We, we're both yearning for the same kingdom of God. We just have different passions within that. And, and different ideas about how that might become manifest in our country. And that's okay. There are so many things as followers of Jesus uh, that, that we should be passionate about. And, and so in reality, I can walk in unity with that person because we desire the same things. We both desire the protection of unborn children. We both desire to see a massive shift in in. Uh, toward the de-pornification of our culture. Uh, We both desire to see the hearts of young men and women changed by the Holy Spirit because that's where where the real change comes. And, and, And so as we slow down, that's a hypothetical scenario, but as those two people slow down and begin to walk with one another, they find out, whoa, we actually care about the same things. And we just need to listen to one another as we go. There are so many things that we can be passionate about for the sake of the kingdom of God. Abortion, euthanasia, widows and orphans, homelessness, sex trafficking, racial inequality, gender identity, maintaining biblical marriage. But here's the issue. If we're all equally passionate about all the same things, it means we either don't really care about anything or we all just care about one issue. And neither of those things are going to be helpful in seeing the kingdom of God break into every area of life. We actually, as one body of diverse members, need to be passionate about different things in order to see His kingdom come. But if you're passionate about one thing and I'm passionate about another, That's really good for the sake of the kingdom of God, but it creates the opportunity for division. Because the thing you're most passionate about is is not the thing I'm most passionate about. And God says, hallelujah, that's how I designed the body of Christ. But down in the trenches, we don't see it that way. Think, oh man, no, you need to care about what I care about to the same degree that I do. Our political climate has taken the kingdom of God and split it in two. They've cut the baby in half. And we can get sucked into arguing about which half of the baby is the better half. That, That is an awful, bloody business. So if we're going to be in those trenches, we have to have empathy for one another. We have to listen to the other and say, I am so glad 
you are passionate about with that. I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to pray for you. Would you run with that? God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in the area that they are most passionate? A lack of empathy destroys us and divides us. In fact, I, as one example of this, during the, the last election, one of my very left-leaning relatives said this. They made this comment. They said, I don't understand why anyone would ever vote for Donald Trump. And they said that, and it just struck a chord in me. And I just thought, oh, man, like, really, like you don't understand why anyone would ever vote for a different political party than you. And you could sub out the name. There's attitudes on both sides. But in their minds, that's virtue. In my mind, that's ignorance. You, you are confessing your blindness. I don't understand why anyone would ever vote for Biden, whatever it is. You're actually confessing, I don't understand a full 50% of the American population, and perhaps I never will. That is not virtue. You, you will be a better disciple if you do understand why people vote for someone that you would not vote for. Uh, we, we need to bring back this spirit of empathy that says, I, I see you, and I'm listening to you, and I'm beginning to understand you and why you think the way that you do. We, we need to have eyes to listen and ears to hear. We need to be able to discuss and maybe even one day to lovingly debate. Wait, help me understand. Why do you think this way? What do you think about this? Let's talk as we walk in unity with one another. There's no other place in the culture where that's possible right now. But it could be possible here. Number six, be more passionate about God's kingdom than you are about your political party. If your excitement over politics is a two out of ten, then your excitement for the kingdom of God has to be at least a 3 out of 10. And hopefully it's higher than that. But you understand what I'm saying. On the other end of the spectrum, if your excitement over politics is a 9 out of 10, that's okay, but your excitement over the kingdom of God needs to be a 10 out of 10 in order for your life to be properly oriented. You better be on fire for Jesus and excited about seeing His kingdom come. I think one of the scandals of the American church is the percentage of people who are more excited about politics than they are about the kingdom of God. Who work harder to usher people into their political camp than they do the kingdom of God. I care more about making this person a Democrat than I do about leading them to Jesus so that they can follow him for all eternity. We can get mixed up in our priorities. Let me convert you to the gospel of the left or the gospel of the right instead of the gospel of Jesus. If that's you... And then, then you have some adjustments to make as you're following after him. Which brings me to my next point. Number seven, remember who the Messiah is. That sounds silly, but then again, it's really not. Whenever there's a presidential election in our nation, uh, a large segment of our population tends to lose its mind. And we begin to believe that our next presidential choice will either usher in the kingdom of God or destroy our nation forever. It takes on this religious zeal that is hard to articulate. Uh, but I want you to hear Paul's words to the Corinthians. He says this, 
He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, uh, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And that's not because you all vote the same way, okay? That's not what he's talking about. My brothers and sisters, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And man, for me, like never is this more true than when elections hit. I just want to say, really? Like your, your church or your small group is blowing up and disintegrating over that? Are there really quarrels among you? What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Trump. Another one of you says, I follow Biden. Another one of you says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided into you? Was Trump crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Biden? Then, I was waiting for that, thank you. Then stop acting like it. That person is not the Messiah, and they're probably not the Antichrist, so just take a deep breath and put that in its proper context. Number eight, be willing to admit the flaws in your own party. One of the most disheartening things in our political climate is that no one can ever admit that they're wrong or that their party or candidate has any flaw. It's like the new religious blasphemy. Like you will be taken out and stoned by your own party if you admit that there is a flaw within it. But as followers of Jesus, we don't play by those rules. We, we aren't bound by those cultural restrictions. We are not afraid of those people. We belong to God. We belong to His kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven, not here. Your life is wrapped up in Christ not in your political party of choice. And if all of those things are true, then there should be a healthy detachment from the things of this world. Here is me and my identity and my life in Christ, and here are these things over here. And with that healthy separation, you should be secure enough to admit the flaws in your own candidate or your own party. You can vote for Trump and admit that some of his tweets are demonic. That's okay. Like You can do both of those things. You can vote for Biden and still flatly disagree with his take on homosexual marriage. That's okay. Like You can admit both of those things at the same time. If you can't, and this is what we see a lot, as followers of Jesus, we end up signing off on things and endorsing things and justifying things that are just not of Him. But we defend them and ref because we refuse to see a flaw in our own party or candidate. You can. You are free to do that as a follower of Jesus. To say, I, I voted this way or I agree with this, but you know what? I don't agree with this. And sometimes we need to, depending on what's happening. Number nine, pray for your leaders. You may not naturally love the men and women in public office. That might not be the first thing that wells up in your heart when you think about them. Okay? You may not have voted for them. They may irritate you, but you can respect them. As image bearers of God, attempting to serve our nation in the way that you know how, and you can pray for them. And I don't mean those backhanded prayers, right? Not saying, God, would you please just make them less of an idiot and convert them to my political party so that they can see the lights? And no, no, that's not how we pray for them. We say, God, would you bless that man or woman? And what they're attempting to do, would you give them your wisdom 
Would you give them your justice? I would rather die than be the president of the United States right now. That's just me personally. I would rather die. Like, I do not want to serve in political office in the climate that we're in right now. But there are men and women who are doing that. And if I was in that position, man, I would need some prayer. God, your blessing, your wisdom, your justice, your truth, would it come to bear, would it flow through the men and women who have made this decision with their lives? Uh, Begin praying for them, especially if you did not vote for them, and see what God does in your heart as you're praying for them. Number 10. Yes, we're up to 10. Remember that politics is downstream from culture, not upstream. And this is actually one of my favorite points. Uh, We live in a post-Christian culture, uh, in a lost culture, in a secular culture. And Christians have sought to regain power and influence through politics. We, We have watched our influence wane at a cultural level, and we've said the way we're going to gain that back is through politics. We're going to put all our eggs in that basket. If we can get the right men and women elected, essentially what we're thinking is that it will usher in revival. Because in our minds, we believe that politics steers culture. And if that's the steering wheel, then we're all going to fight to the death over the steering wheel. Who's behind the wheel? Who's in the Oval Office? The sad reality is that that politics does not steer culture. Culture steers politics. Politics is downstream from culture, not upstream. And we've had some wonderful followers of Jesus, men and women, elected to Congress and other places who slowly over time have come to that sad conclusion. I wish that were not true. I wish we could elect Jesus' followers into office and that the culture would change as a result. But when they get there, they realize, oh my gosh, my job is to take the culture as it is and put it into law. To serve culture where it's at, I don't have the power to change that culture, but we think that they do. And that's one of the reasons we fight so violently over politics is because what we want to see is the culture change. What we want to see is revival. And the men and women who are sitting in Congress and in other places would say, it's not going to work. This is not how we're going to change the culture. Culture changes at the grassroots level, from the ground up, not the top down. And, And that's good news for us, and that's bad news for us. The good news is that the means to cultural change is us. That that churches bringing people to Jesus, seeing people flooded and transformed by the Spirit of God and become disciples is actually the way that culture changes. So we matter, and what we're doing matters, perhaps more than who's in office at any given point in time. And that's really good news for us because we matter and this matters. But it's also bad news because it's a lot harder. Making disciples in the trenches as a means of cultural change takes a lot longer, and it's a lot harder than saying, oh, can't we just get the right man or the right woman into that spot as the silver bullet that will just change? And the men and women there are saying, I'm sorry, we, this is not how it works. I've now been put here to take culture as it is and interpret that and to serve it. So we are to go and make disciples, as Jesus told us to make disciples. And if we're committed to the business of doing that, I promise you the culture will change. As thousands of people, of disciples, are making thousands of more disciples, we will see cultural change. But in the meantime, we don't need to fight quite so belligerently over our politics because it doesn't actually have the cultural influence we assumed it had. The sad irony is that many of those churches that were blown apart by political disagreements um, not only failed to influence a single vote to the right or the left, 
but they also blew up the very vehicle for cultural change that God had entrusted to them. They got it wrong. They put their eggs in the wrong basket and destroyed the mechanism for cultural change that was in their midst. I think we can get so wrapped up in those things and God's saying, hey, that's not how I'm going to bring about revival. That will not be the means for transforming the culture. And finally, number 11. This is the last one, I promise. Remember that Jesus offended both the left and the right. If I haven't offended you already this morning, this is my chance. If Jesus were alive right now, in America, I honestly couldn't tell you if he would vote or not, and I honestly couldn't tell you who he would vote for, but I'm confident of this. He would offend the right, and he would offend the left, because Jesus is offensive. And when we open the pages of Scripture, what we don't always realize is that they had a right and they had a left. They had people who politically think just like they do today. Uh, And and so you have uh, the Romans and the Sadducees who functioned like the left. And you had the Pharisees and the Zealots who functioned like the right. And he offended them both. Neither of them could quite figure Jesus out. Neither of them could pin him down. Do we think we can? Do we think we've figured Jesus out? Do we think we can pin him down? We go into the voting booth and we see two options. It's very black and white. There's the left and there's the right. And and we say, okay, I have to choose one of those. Jesus, who should I choose? Who would you vote for? It just feels very A or B, black or white. That's not what we see in the Gospels. In fact, I would argue that Jesus was actually asked who he would vote for. Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's pretty black and white in my mind. That's them saying, Jesus, who would you vote for? Would you vote for the Romans and the Sadducees and the left? or? Would you vote for the zealots and the Pharisees and the right? It's black and white, Jesus. Here's your ballot. Make your choice. We've got him. What does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And in the aftermath, the crowds are amazed. You know what else the crowds are? Confused. Wait, what? Jesus, you didn't answer the question. Who would you vote for? Who are we supposed to vote for? And there he goes. He's just walking off to his next thing. Can you imagine the frustration that they must have felt? You know what Jesus said to the left? He said, you don't understand life because you don't understand the scriptures and the power of God. You've gone secular. You're living by a false narrative. You know what he said to the right? He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll have life, but you refuse to come to me to have that life. He offended them both. He challenged them in their thinking on both sides. He said, you've, you've made an idol on the right of religious and national identity. Throw that out. Don't let that be your primary identity. Come follow me. This is offensive to the secular left and to the nationalistic right. He offended them both. What about us? What about you? Are you willing to risk offending the left and the right as you follow after Jesus. Let's pray.
Jesus, our prayer this morning is simple. And it's a prayer you already prayed. Our prayer is that you would make us one, just as you and the Father are one. And Lord, uh, in this context, in this moment, I'm sure we would love to lift up other forms of unity to chase after and to sort of ignore this topic of political unity and to sweep it under the rug and to stay entrenched in our places. But Lord, uh, I am challenged in this. We are challenged in this. Uh, And my goodness, what an opportunity we have before us. As we look out on a culture where Jew and Gentile will not talk to each other, where Jew and Gentile increasingly will not intermarry or even enter into dialogue with one another. Lord, may the church filled with your spirit be different. Would we be marked by your love? Would we be marked by your identity? Would we be marked by a singular mind that goes after the kingdom of God? So now seek first the kingdom of God. Would that just be our beating heart? God, give us uh, empathy for those who don't think like us, who might have different ideas about how the kingdom of God will work itself out politically. God, may we have patience for one another, eyes to see, ears to hear. And Lord, would you glorify yourself in this place by the way that we walk. Would your kingdom come. Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.